every good marketplace is complemented with an operating system. It integrates some aspect of supply chain. And there's a human looking over the whole thing saying, I understand how you're trying to run your business. Let me help you with tools to run better. And the marketplace becomes like, it's a way that this magical organism that's called a business, you know, makes money. But it's ultimately, I think the good marketplaces are at the bottom of a very long funnel of different services that get offered along the way. And at the end, there's a transaction. And why would you do it anywhere else but the marketplace? Like those are the best. It is the platform of which kinetic energy dances on. Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Right you are, Fat Joe. Right you are. Welcome to Run the Numbers, where I interview world-class CFOs, operators, and the investors who fund them on how to get the most out of your company's performance. This podcast is a playbook of sorts for ambitious people in the worlds of finance, strategy, and operations. Today, my guest is Jack Greco, the founder of ACV Auctions, a publicly traded B2B marketplace for automobiles. We spend the episode going through the nuances of scaling a two-sided network business, the good, the ugly, and the misunderstood elements. On this episode, we cover the human ingredient necessary in any marketplace business, why marketplaces should be thought about as the cart and not the horse to solve a problem, reserving a make-good budget for mistakes and fixing problems with some cash, how auctions can be a forcing function to create sufficient supply and demand liquidity, understanding the unique rhythms in business seasonality, how marketplaces should determine their take rates, and the importance of investor updates if you take someone's money. Jack is also an angel invested in over 150 companies, most of them marketplaces which move physical goods. He has unconventional and funny advice for how good a marketplace actually needs to be to win. And he gives real examples of how marketplaces he's invested in have creatively connected two sides. While we concentrate on a specific time he was building ACV, this is truly a masterclass in all things marketplaces and valuable for anyone who is interested in businesses which depend on a high degree of trust. All this and much, much more after a short word from our sponsors. CRMs are slow, hard to configure, and overly complicated. Adio changes that. Adio is a radically new type of CRM built specifically for the next generation of companies. It's flexible, easily configures to your unique data structure, and works for any go-to-market motion from self-serve to sales-led. Adio automatically enriches your contacts, syncs your emails and calendars, lets you create powerful custom reports, and quickly builds intricate Zapier-style automations. Say goodbye to one-size-fits-all CRMs and outdated user experiences. With Adio, you can focus on scaling your company to the next level. Try Adio instantly at adio.com. That's A-T-T-I-O dot com. That is A-T-T-I-O dot com. Jack, what's going on, man? Welcome to the pod. Hey, CJ. How you doing? So I'm a CFO at a venture-backed marketplace, specifically in the auto industry. So you were kind enough to answer my cold LinkedIn mail. I, you know, you got you to gotta play up, hey, I'm in the sector and everything. But like, I'm, I'm such a huge fan of what you built at ACV Auctions and now all the investing experience you have on the marketplace side. So I'm excited to jam out. Cool. Absolutely. I'm excited too. I love doing these. Something that struck me now, I, I come off the top rope talking about cars, but you said that ACV was in the business of people and, and not cars. What, why did you say it was a human business? You can tell you listen to previous podcasts or you have like a wiretap on my phone, right? This is why. Look, I mean, ACV for people that don't know, right? It's a, it's a digital auction, dealer to dealer, which means the people that reside on the system kind of treat it a little bit like a utility, right? Like, They've built their business knowing ACV is going to be there. Just like you build your business knowing when you hit the light switch, the lights goes on. You put the trash in the trash can, it gets taken out. You hit the app, ACV's there, and there's either stuff to buy or, or place for you to sell. So why is it not about the product? It's not about the product because truly what we do, I thought what made ACV, and, I, and this is synonymous. I'm an investor in a lot of marketplaces, and if I invest... I usually have been helpful at some place along the way and picked up a little bit. Pollen on my feet, 
maybe is a good way to put it. But the best marketplaces, they find a way to own and maximize the customer experience. Because, yeah, I mean, ACV sells cars, but what we really do, especially for our buyers who are primarily independent car dealers, like, and this is me speaking like five years out of ACV, it's still we, right? I mean, when you build something, it's still we, but it's not about that. I mean, what it is, is it is the lifeline of being able to, like the product's going to come in, right? They have other places they can go to get used cars. What they don't have is they don't have a relationship that they can trust. So you hear the words like trust and transparency thrown around a lot. I, I actually think they're way overused and they're misused in a lot of situations as well. But the trust that really comes of it is like, I think the best marketplaces decouple the relationship between buyer and seller. And it becomes a personal relationship between the marketplace and the buyer and the marketplace and the seller. So when I say it's a relationship of people, I mean, you can go on LinkedIn, Google ACV and see how many people we have in how many different territories. It's not because we're a remote first company. We're not. That's because there's actually human beings in those territories owning the relationships. And I can tell you, like any geographically dependent marketplace, which ACV is, I mean, it's moving two ton chunks of metal that are very expensive to move versus the little margin that is able to be made on it, right? You know, you need to be able to build relationships in order to you know, acquire customers and more so retain them, right? I mean, as you start to get to whatever the fat part of the bell curve looks like in terms of company life cycle and stuff, it, it's not about getting new customers, right? Like the ocean isn't as, as big as you thought it was. And it comes down to how well you keep people. And you keep people by understanding the human aspect of it, right? I would say the times that made me smile was when there'd be people in our inside sales team who would catch a dealer in a lie or some load of bullshit. And just say, look, I get it, right? Like, just so you know, I've got an allowance to take care of you. So like, you don't need to give me this crap. Like we have a relationship. I'm going to be here on the cars that you make money on. And I'm going to be here on the cars that maybe you don't. Because if I lose you, I don't have a business. And I, I, so that's why I think of it as a very human dependent thing. It's, you know, yeah, theoretically, if one guy falls off the system, everything else will just crowd in and be able to fill that supplier, that demand. It's not perfectly efficient on either side. But by and large, I think one of the reasons we were successful and the company will remain being successful is its ability to maintain and grow very true, long, long-term relationships. And not just looking at the margin on a specific transaction, but more so on the value of having the weight of, on that, primarily on the demand side is where a lot of the relationships happen. Something that I'm actually trying to emulate or steal from your business is this idea of, of a make good budget that you employed. Maybe it was in lieu of marketing in some ways. Can you speak to wh what you did there and also how much you had to get right if you got something wrong to make up for it? Yeah. So, I mean, look, you know, and again, I've been out of ACV a while. It, it's, it's a low take rate business. So what that means is for every dollar that goes across the system, we get pennies, right? So a screw up, could be big, right? You know, we're also working with a product where in automotive, the car can be improperly identified. You know, so the whole idea of make good, it's like, how do you want to invest, right? Like, how do you acquire customers and how do you keep customers? So there's different ways to do it. Some companies go and get massive digital marketing budgets. And like, that's how you learn about the company. You know, I just thought, look, this is a highly localized business, right? So the way we acquire and keep people, like the way we do our marketing is the same way we do our business development and sales, which is like human to human connection. Maybe it's me stopping in to see you. And then, you know, that's the ground. That's the ground game. There's air coverage with somebody probably calling you on the phone. And then we're probably launching some missiles, which is the equivalent of like us mailing you some swag, right? Like a random pizza showing up at your place. Like that's what we did. And so... If we're going to spend all that time, if I'm going to put a human being or multiple human beings into the process to acquire you, why am I going to let something stupid like a mistake or a discrepancy in a highly inefficient system? Like an auction is not a perfect system. Even with all the data and every, like we're not, it's not the same thing as having the car. It's not the same thing as having a car with, an, you know, a 25 year Subaru tech looking at the Subaru, knowing what to look for. Like it's not that. There's going to be uncertainty. There's going to be surprises. So ideally, what we do is we do as best as we can. And then look, the, the reason people are buying these cars is not because they're 
collectors and it pisses them off if it was the VIN said it's supposed to be, you know, a 57 Chevy that's, you know, cherry bomb red and it's pink. They're doing it because they want to make money. So the question is like, okay, well, guess what? There's this amazingly elastic thing called money where I can give you some and it makes it okay. I can't get the dent out of the car. I can't tell you why the delivery guy dropped it off four buildings over. I can't explain why it smells like dog shit in the back seat when we didn't tell you that. But I can give you some money and say, will this make it better? You know, anybody listening to this, as long as you don't live in the center of New York City, drive two miles and you'll run into, you know, you'll run into somebody running a small business and they happen to sell used cars. Right. So we know what that's like. I mean, I grew up, my father was an entrepreneur. Like we had to do the exact same thing. Like we were in the furniture industry. Hey, sorry. Like my idiot brother dropped the t- leaf to this table. I'll get you another one. And by the way, here's a gift card for like the steak place around the corner. Here's 50 bucks. Sorry. Right. People get it. It's a sense of effort. It's a sense of like, I, I care about you more than this transaction. Cause I could just unwind the transaction and, 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 you know, be out of it. But I think it just all comes down. I, I wish I could tell you that I was such a deep numbers guy that I was calculating everything in my brain and it all made sense. And that's what made Bessemer and Bain love us so much where unit economics were killer and everything was like taken to the 10th degree. But the truth is we said, we're only going to hire happy people. We want to only really try and do our best to try and make our customers happy. And the rest should kind of do itself. Like ACV has not changed at all since the day we launched it. Like it's a 20 minute auction platform for used cars. Like that's all it is. You hit a button to bet a hundred dollars. You hit another button to put in a different price. Like it's all it is. You know, maybe we tell you more now than we did before, but while we were developing the platform and even today, I mean, I don't know what they do, but I got to imagine a good customer calls with a real problem and it gets fixed because of some type of make good effort. Right. I mean, that's how you keep things going. It's how you keep people happy. There is a beauty there in in making the complex simple and something that you identified from the outset. And I, d- I don't know why marketplace leaders always kind of get over their skis on this, but y- you saw the marketplace as the cart, not not the horse. Can you speak to that? And, and maybe it links to the human element, but how do other marketplaces miss this? All right. So, so you got investors out there. And look, there are some investors... There are a lot of investors that are a lot more successful than me. They have made more money. They have picked bigger winners. Like I've done a good amount of investing, but it's all been, you know, I've been catching, you know, primarily like sardines and perch, right? I haven't brought in any whales or anything, but there's the way the investors think about marketplace. And it it just, it blows my mind. Like when I give you that statement, a good marketplace is a utility. That's what I look for. I want somebody to depend. I don't care if it's just, your gas line coming into your house. Like, you know what I use gas for? I use it in the summer. The only thing I use it for is to cook on my stove. And my oven doesn't even work right now. So it's just to cook my stove top. But I need it to work. And so what, what, what grinds me is like people talk about, like they get worried about so many things. I, I try and say, I, I go back to the statement of like the narrow deep wedge. You want to be the longest sliver possible, right? And you want to be able to cut through the entire market with something you know, I'm a Heinz 57 guy, right? Like I want the absolute best single thing where it's no thought. I don't care that it's twice as much as everything else. It's cheap and I like it. Get that hunt shit out of here. Yeah, exactly. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. As a SaaS CFO, I know firsthand how difficult it is to report on SaaS metrics. We've all seen a deal close at the end of the month, but the customer's contract doesn't actually start until the middle of the next month, creating the classic discrepancy between bookings or committed ARR and actual ARR, the real stuff. That's why I'm so pumped to be partnering with Maxio, a company trusted by thousands of SaaS companies to understand these reporting nuances. They basically built and automated the SaaS dashboard I tried to manually cobble together for three years. In 2022, SaaS Optics and Chargeify combined to become Maxio, the only billing and financial operations platform that was purpose-built for B2B SaaS. They're helping SaaS finance teams automate billing and RevRec, manage collections and payments, and put together investor-grade reporting packages. Visit maxio.com slash run the numbers to learn how Maxio can help you supercharge financial operations in 2024. Request a demo using the Run the Numbers link and receive a 10% discount on your first year with Maxio. That's maxio.com forward slash run the numbers. 
Well, you know what I always say, maintaining compliance is never complete, which is why most security and IT teams feel like they're always in audit purgatory. (laughs) I'm there right now. But there is a solution, and it's easier than you think. Escape the infinite loop by using ThoroughPass's compliance and audit solution. ThoroughPass is the only solution using AI-infused technology and in-house auditors to take your team from start to stamp without leaving the platform. As a winner of multiple G2 awards, including top awards for usability and service, your team is in good hands with ThoroughPass. From onboarding with dedicated experts to audits from in-house auditors who know every aspect of your framework needs, you can have complete confidence in your ThoroughPass compliance journey. ThoroughPass is the only solution to offer audits for your most needed security frameworks. I'm talking HIPAA to High Trust and SOC 2 to ISO 27001. Woo! If you need PCI, DSS, pen tests, or any other major compliance framework, ThoroughPass can hook you up. With ThoroughPass, you never need to worry again. Relax, we fix audits. Find more at ThoroughPass.com. That's T-H-O-R-O-P-A-S-S.com. Tell them your boy CJ sent you. They'll hook you up. Boom. I guess when, when I think about it, a marketplace is a way to create liquidity amongst like-minded individuals that have something to transact. Now, ECV is unique because buyers could be sellers and sellers can be buyers, right? I got a car, which is basically something, it's a it's an artifact of which I have cash in it. I, I got every dealer paid money for the car that they own, right? So they took, got rid of money, got a car. You know, I work in some like, you know, like think of it more like uh, raw material exchanges where it was like, okay, I grew this, it's a little bit different, right? Like I just happened to have a better season and it was more of it, right? It's not like that with cars. I, in order for me to get a car, I had to give something up. So when I think around the way marketplaces should work, like you should just make, like you basically need to be at most a traffic cop. You got to make sure that everybody just doesn't hit and kill everybody in a marketplace when it's a two-sided marketplace, right? And ACV is not, it's an auction. It is not managed. It is no holds bar. Anybody can post, anybody can buy. God knows what's going on in the background. I'm sure people are trying to screw the system, but it's okay. Like we're not trying to make sure we're not the police officer that's like trying to give everybody a ticket. We're just trying to make sure that that there's no red light, green light, except for us. And we're trying to make sure everything's going in the direction it should. So there just are not any major. And that's what I think good marketplaces are, you know, like watch an old like Indiana Jones movie and see what like the marketplace was in wherever the hell he was. And, you know, the second one, or, you know, I think back, I used to go to like flea markets and I, you know, I spent a lot of time, I had family in like waste remediation, like even that, like a transfer station to some degree is a managed marketplace. Like people are showing up with stuff. There's reasons why they go there and not other places. You know, and you just realize they're all different just modes of transact, of humans transacting with humans. So until robots start, you know, or AI or whatever starts doing all this, you know, it's, it's the way relationships are cemented. It's the custody of trust between two people. And ultimately, you just need somebody in the middle that takes the long view being like, I just want to make sure everybody's happy. I like how you brought it back to the fundamentals there. What are you actually trying to achieve by setting up this marketplace? We're helping people buy and sell cars. And I think a lot of founders take this overly complex view of talking about the business as this like organism that's out there. But you have to distill it down to what the first principles are. Like, What are you actually helping two people accomplish? And do they trust you? Yeah, and right. I mean, the, the thing is, every... Every car dealer is in the business of selling a car. Like they want to retail them. That's where they make the money. And when they can't retail them, they take them to auction because they just need cash. You know, newer cars depreciate, you know, newer used cars depreciate like 80 bucks a day. That's a rough number. It told, I mean, a Maserati is entirely different than a Kia, right? But, you know, the point is it's a, it's a real number. So what do we do? We just let you turn stuff you can't sell into cash so you can buy other stuff to sell sooner. And most used marketplaces are like that. You know, I sit on the, I'm a board observer, I should say at Octo, which is a company that like, it's a great company out of Toronto. Jamil's an awesome founder. It's an auction-based marketplace, but it's for taking surplus capital equipment and liquidating it. So like I'm General Motors and I decommission a line. What am I doing with all that manufacturing equipment, right? Like, it can go into a warehouse or I could have a managed upstream, you know, CapEx inventory system like Octo has. And ultimately you just press a button and they'll just put it to a marketplace and sell it for you and create cash. 
right? You know, it creates cash, it creates space. It's one less thing to worry about. You know, it's a good marketplace, right? It's ultimately, what are you doing? You know, I just, I had a call earlier today, another company I sit on the board of called Inseam, which is really at this intersection between high-end luxury fashion and people whose job it is to buy clothes for other people, professional, like wardrobe consultants, right? So it's a B2B transaction. But again, the, the buyer of that is a small business who they're like, look, I need to be able to go pick beautiful wardrobes for this expensive client that I have. And I need an easier way to do it. And I need a way where I can make more money and it keeps me more organized and it, it makes, and I know what's going on with my cash flow and Inseam does all that. So it's, so they take the problem of saying, how can we make you run your business better? And a marketplace becomes a component of that, right? It's just, it's just a, it's just a catalog for you to be able to buy whatever inventory it has today. But like every good marketplace is complemented with an operating system. It integrates some aspect of supply chain. And there's a human looking over the whole thing saying, I understand how you're trying to run your business. Let me help you with tools to run better. And the marketplace becomes like, it's a, it's a way that the, this magical organism that's called a business, you know, makes money. But it's, it's ultimately, I think the good marketplaces are at the bottom of a very long funnel of different services that get offered along the way. And at the end, there's a transaction. And why would you do it anywhere else? But the marketplace, like those are the best. When I listen to you go through this, it makes me think, Jack, that a marketplace is really a conduit. It's not the thing in and of itself. It's the conduit of something else you're trying to accomplish. It is the platform of which kinetic energy dances on, right? Like it's, they need to be structured, but unbridled, right? Like they need to be elegant, but intelligently designed. Is that why you went with an auction format? Because I'm curious, you, you chose to kind of constrain the, the time at which people met, which I think is fascinating. So look, our predecessors were physical auctions. So, you know, like, like we got like, right? But I will tell you this, you know, the cool thing about an auction is it's an open marketplace of which because there's a time element, you create a limelight event, right? Like, okay. There could be 10 things for sale for 10 days. But if I only let each thing go for sale for one day, you have to on that day focus on that item. Now, instead of it being a day, make it 20 minutes, all of a sudden, like that 20 minutes is a very concentrated thing. We're humans. We have attention spans. We have work days. We go to bed. We wake up. The sun goes up. The sun goes down. Like 20 minutes in ratio to those things matters, right? Because guess what that means? That means if I'm going to spend two hours buying cars, and I'm going to spend, you know, and we weren't wise enough to do this initially, but like in some grander world, we understood how long somebody had to take to fully understand based on a condition report, what that car was and if they wanted to buy it. And then we had to give them enough time to play the game, right? It's like, you know, if you sat down at a partially played chess match, there's a time to understand where all the pieces are. And then there is a time to complete the game and win. And that's what the auction is. To understand where the pieces are, aka understand what the product is, make a decision you want to play, make a decision what you go in at, make a decision what you're looking for, and then how long it takes for it to play, aka that you will bid and hold the tension and not fatigue and be interested in it and be a, and be happy if you win, but content if you don't. You know, the average auction is more than two bidders on it, which means there's more losers than winners. So you got to be okay. You know, I think the best, the cool thing about auctions, you could like there are things like bitter fatigue. There are things like momentum. There are things like guys spend, you know, when the wallet opens, when someone gets hot, they just start bitting heavy on everything. There is these invisible things that are innately human and behavioral that when you put something in a timed, structured box of which there's a beginning and end, and it's not a classified system, you get to run it in a different way. But most things can't sell an auction. You know, I grew up working on a dairy farm. Cows sell at auction because you know why? No cow wants to sit there for five days, right? You got to feed it. It shits. It walks around. It tries to bang other cows. Like, you can't do that. So how come when a cow walks in, does it walk? I mean, you see them. They're in pens. It comes in. You bid, and it leaves because it's an animal, right? Like, it's just, it, the animals that are automotive auctions aren't in the pens. They're the ones bidding. So you got to build something that, you know, keeps them happy. And I think by accident, we did that. It was way more by accident than it was intention. 
you essentially created an event, an event around things. I, I like this supermarket reference that you've used before that you don't want people to show up to the supermarket to buy something and there's nothing on the shelves. Is that kind of how you thought about it? Yeah. You know, the, the reference you're, you're, you're pointing to is like, you know, if I have a, if I have a huge supermarket, but like I only have enough supply to fill 10% of the shelves, you should put a black sheet up on 90% and push everything together. Because when I look, I want it to feel like there's abundance. And I don't really care if you have everything or not. I want to feel like you don't, you aren't missing things. So yeah, the cool thing about an event is like, hey, we'll let you know when there's an auction by sending you a notification. Theoretically, you don't go on the system unless you get a notification. This is the way it was early on. And then all we try and do is group the auction. So when you go on, you're like, holy cow, there's 30 things for sale. Those might be the only 30 things we had for sale the entire week. But they were running in the same hour, right? So all of a sudden, you're like, abundance, a lot. I should go there. I can trust it. It's got a lot going on, right? Like, these are the things you want people to say. I flip the light switch. The light goes on. For all I know, every second that my lights aren't on, there is no electricity in the entire city. But I don't know. Because as long as I hit the light switch and it goes on, I don't care what happens the rest of the time. I trust things because I have survived trusting them already. And so you have to create these situations that you have set a precedent of being reliable, right? Like that's the idea of the whole thing. Something else that you're also trying to play with in the background is the dynamic of seasonality. And just from someone who's in the auto industry now, can you speak to what role seasonality played in your business and, and f how long maybe it took for the management team to understand these kind of unique rhythms? You know, we sold our first car in June which is a good part, but not the best, but a good part of the used car market. And we were like June, July, August, September, like up, 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 up. You know, we were selling, we were doing like 24 million-ish in annualized GMV run rate in our fourth month. Crazy, you know, absolutely crazy. And then all of a sudden we realized things slow down in the fall and the winter. You know, we, we saw it. I would say it did not even take, as soon as we saw the first drop, we went digging to ask why. And when you talk to people, it's like, hey, I'm not getting the cars on trade. Like my new car volumes dip, or I know it's going to dip, or I want to hold cars because tax season's coming. I don't want to pay profit and blah, blah, blah. There's a million reasons. But all it takes is one miss and you have to ask the questions. I think the big thing for us, we played the game like our hair was on fire. So when something went wrong, we tried to say, we need to figure this out because we're going to be through this a million more times. So let's figure it out now. So, I mean, by our first full season, I bet you we nailed, there's seasonality and then there's macro trends. I think we nailed seasonality within 90% correctness, like our, our, our like, like accuracy. Macro trends, I mean, you know, we started the company and we sold our first car in 2015. It's 2024. We had some big black swan event happen in the middle of there, which, you know, you can imagine screwed things up. Interest rates have been low, 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 medium, high, ridiculously high, right? Like uh, there's just these different influences. And I think what you learn is when you go to the beach, the weather can be whatever. The, the tide comes, the, the waves roll on a certain pace. That's your seasonality. And then the weather's whatever it is. And that could be anything. And you just got to go prepared. You just can't get caught twice. You know, the, the company doesn't hold inventory. So it's not like we get caught holding inventory and all of a sudden we lose a bunch of money or make a lot of money when there's appreciation. You know, it's a picks and shovels operation, right? So there'll be times when there's less people coming for picks and shovels. There is plenty of dealers out there. And the argument we always made was we could always grow our way out of it. Hey, look, if it's a down month, we just got to bring out more new customers. It's a down month for them too. They got more time. Maybe they'll evaluate a new opportunity. The obstacle is the way in that sense. I, I love how you say that you can grow out of it. I always say some more GMV and some more shops cover up a lot of sins. Revenue cures all ills. I mean, profit really does. But for a startup, you know, revenue does. We're speaking about seasonality and, and that's maybe within a specific year in, in the cadence of how a business moves. But just to take a step back, how much did timing in general play a role in ACV. Do you think it would have worked three years earlier? Were you in the right place at the right time in a sense, or would it have worked at any point? The core fundamentals of the beginning of the business meant that individuals needed to have fluency, connectiveness, responsiveness on a mobile device to the point 
where they didn't mind pressing a button, meaning they could have commit to spending $25,000 on something. That's a big ticket purchase. Yeah. You know, like three, three years earlier, I don't know, 2012, I did, I had a flip phone when we started ACV. So I'm the wrong guy to ask like about the technical aptitude of prior years before that. Right. But I would say no. And look, I mean, ACV, Backlot Cars, Trade Rev, Car Wave, and I think Odo Lane all started within, you know, an 18 month window. And none of us, I think, started because we knew about another one. You know, that was, I think, like Sacramento, Kansas City, Buffalo, Toronto, Ottawa. I'm trying to think of where they technically started something like that. And I think it's just because we all got to the point where we were like, you know, somewhere somebody looked and they're like, why is this being done in person? Why am I driving to this thing? Why do they give me no condition report? Why does this car run once a week and then it does and then it goes on a classified site the rest of the time? God, these classifiers like something convinced somebody that understood the industry that there was a better way to do this. That's why I'm saying what we did. I won't ever say that ACV was like a revolutionary idea. It wasn't. It was evolutionary. And I think as a team, we just out-executed the other people. We took a different strategy. Much to my dismay, and I was wrong, we raised more money than everybody else, built up a war chest, got bigger, faster, and we were the only ones that remained independent. Trade Rev, Car Wave, and Backlot Cars all got by, by the entity formerly known as Odessa, the artist formerly known as Car. I mean, I don't know what's going on with Oda Lane. And then there's other ones like Car Offer and some other ones that are out there. But like, nobody's us. You know, there's a reason why you're doing this podcast with me. And there isn't like two other companies like us that went public. And I give a lot of credit to our investors who said, go big or go home. We're going to go public. And you're going to raise a ton of money. You're going to take a ton of dilution. And we're going to, we have a manifest destiny. We're going to crush the US. Damn. Jack, something that you just said there is that, hey, there's a better way to do this. How much? better does a marketplace have to be to get someone to use it and change their behavior compared to the old way of doing things? Is it like marginally better or does it have to be 10 times better? What does it take for you to take off a sweater that makes you itch? Another sweater like that doesn't itch. That's it. Like you just have to find <laughs> like you got to find out an itch and cure it. And you got to let somebody know I can fix that itch. That's it. This wasn't the answer I was expecting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think it's a lot. When it comes to marketplaces, like for us to take things, something offline to make it online, you know, was was the itch, right? Like it was able to, I, I don't actually even think that the best part of ACV was making it mobile. I thought that that was very important, but it was, I think it was 1B. 1A was the fact that we actually looked at every single car and we put a independent condition report that we would stand behind. And if we were wrong, we'd pay. And so we introduced, instead of so many people that are trying to remove a node, we just changed the node that existed. We went from, we thought physical auctions were irresponsible. And given that it was primarily a duopoly between Odessa and Mannheim, neither of them really tried that hard. You know, the, those that believe we have a busted political system, I can, I can explain, you can understand what a duopoly does. You know, I think it reduces the ability to have competition. And competition creates efficiency. And we just said we can do this more efficiently. Like, yeah, we'll pay the money. We'll pay the W-2 guy or woman to get in their car on even snowy and hot days, and drive out and look at these cars and do at least initial assessment, which over time advanced and developed to an intermediate and now more of an advanced assessment. And we'll give it to you for free because I'm not just selling cars and building relationships. And why wouldn't I make it better for you? And that goes back to the human element that we talked about at the beginning. You also said that the human interaction has to be a spice. It, it's necessary, but it can't be overkill. So it sounds like you were using some of the funding to basically subsidize a node in that system. But can you speak to how you thought about the amount of human interaction you could have per transaction? Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, like if you get the right humans, they get annoyed at the right time. Right. Like there are some pushovers that will just be annoyed and like let you just destroy them on a daily basis and they just keep coming back for more. Then there's the people with no patience at all. I'm probably one of those people. You know, like well, you have two kids. I think that happens when you're a dad. I have an eight year old. I just use up all the patience on them. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and wait till they're eight, because it just doesn't come back the way it used to. I think of it like a Goldilocks window. 
where people know when they're being taken advantage of. And like when I think of these very human traits, there were some of the things that we were, I think we unknowingly looked for in our early, I'll call them market makers, like our inside sales team that were helping facilitate a tra- on a transaction by transaction basis what was going on. But later on, it developed into something that we were looking for. Like you need people that, that know, hey, I've got a commission structure and I make most of my money on commission. So I need to keep you happy because you buy stuff. And I know how to give you what I call a meter to response, a measured response based on what you can be, who you are, how you've played, what it's worth. Like, And, and you need people to understand the, the emotional quote and, and like the uh, human intricacies of the transaction. Honestly, we didn't tell people don't spend too much time or too little time. You know, people would come and say, what am I supposed to do in this situation? And I felt like an old grandpa being like, well, is it worth spending time with them? And they're like, no. And I'm like, well, I guess you got your answer. Like I didn't, you know, and people made their own decisions. Some people ran it like, you know, this is infield and in-house sales. Like some people were wildly efficient, you know, and some people weren't. And some people didn't care. They were like, you know what? I enjoy having relationships with these people. So I sell less cars. Like these people are never going to walk. And I don't mind it if I make 80 grand a year instead of 100 grand a year. I'd rather enjoy what I do at 80 than hate what I do at 100. And it was like, okay, well, we'll just hire somebody else to do the other 200 because there's five of you and that's a thousand cars for somebody else, you know, or whatever. But I think when any company create situations where people kind of feel like they kind of at least have some control over their day. You know, they in themselves, in some ways, like ACV was a marketplace between buyers and sellers, but there was a, there was like an, like an independent PL almost ownership in everybody that was in at least sales inside the organization, right? You could make more money by running your little business better. And, you know, people would stand up. They'd be like, I'm not losing that customer. It's one of my best customers. And like, that always made me smile. Like I'd be, you know, I ran ops and finance. And so it was a very close seat to the head of sales. And I'd say, what's going on? They don't like the reshuffling. And I'm like, well, why are you shuffling them? Like, why? Isn't that working? You know? And I think the company did a really good job of not fixing things that weren't broken. You know, again, I tell people, go on LinkedIn, look at how many people I've been out of there since the end of 2018. A lot of people I was in the room when we hired are still there. And for a company, it's only been around 10 years to have people, a lot of people there that are six and seven and eight years old is really impressive because we didn't have that many employees eight years ago. How can we have that many of them left? You know, the cohort analysis is actually a pretty high retention rate. So, Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Reduce burn, extend runway, do more with less. Operational efficiency. These are all catchphrases that we know all too well because of the headwinds business leaders face in today's growth environment. Growth is now a battle, not a breeze. While teams are on the front lines fighting every day for top line yardage, there are hidden savings opportunities right beneath their feet. That's where Tropic comes into play. Their procurement platform brings order and process to a historically decentralized and chaotic business function. Purchasing and supplier management. Tropic serves as the front door for procurement that your entire company will want to use. By combining intake forms, pricing benchmarks, approval workflows, and supplier management all in one place, Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. When you pour blood, sweat, and tears into revenue growth, doesn't it make sense to protect what you have fought for? Visit tropicapp.io slash metrics to learn how modern businesses are controlling spend to extend their runway. Your board will thank you. Your budget will thank you. Your bottom line will thank you. Maybe one more question on ACV, and then I can hit you with some more generalized marketplace and and investor questions. But Jack, if you look back on the company's journey, was there a single decision you can locate that unlocked the most value? I mean, very, very early on, deciding to invent and develop this vehicle condition inspector role. I mean, this was super early. In the, the first handful of months, like we just let people post their own cars. And I think the decision that we made to have a human that we employed to go out and make an independent third-party assessment was the singular most important decision strategically that we could have made to be successful. I, I, and, and I think indirectly, you know, the way we went to market, we didn't just go to the big cities. We had an adjacent market hypothesis that like, 
it was, we were able to get much more value for much less cost going just next door to where we were, regardless of, you know, Erie's next to Buffalo. So we didn't jump to Cleveland and we didn't hop down to Florida. You know, we would do Erie and Pittsburgh, you know, we do Erie before we do Pittsburgh. You know, we would do, you know, Syracuse and Utica and Scranton to fill the middle of the state before we got to Philadelphia, right? So I think that that decision was really important. Was that was that a bold bold decision or bold move at the time? Like, was there a lot of investment in that? Because you had to hire a person to go out to each one, right? Yeah. And it, it costs basically the same amount to hire somebody to go to Erie as it does to hire somebody to go to Florida, right? To Miami. And people would be like, well, the market's so much bigger. And it'd be like, yeah, but... We're not down there. You know, we'll get down there. You know, we had this like bleeding edge type conquering strategy, right? Like we always treated it like, at least I used to say it was a game of risk, right? And you can't go from, you know, Germany to Russia without going through Poland, right? So, you know, it was just slowly and methodically growing and soaking and saturating and owning and loving and being the utility in all the places we could, you know? In many ways, you're kind of stacking hyper local network effects. Or if I think about it, like on a map, it's kind of like the concentric circle keeps getting larger and larger, but it's a very slow bleed. I mean, look, like somebody would, when people bought cars, they had to figure out how to get them. If the car was an hour away, they throw two guys in a car. One guy gets in the car and they both drive back, right? If it's two hours away, they try and throw four guys in a car, buy three cars out there and drive them all back. Or they send a small truck out to get three. You know, when it's six hours away, they probably don't bid on the car unless they really need it. So, yeah, most of the transactions, I'd say, you know, happen locally because there's a real cost of moving everything every inch. I love that. And so now you've you've recycled a lot of your gains back into the venture and founder ecosystem. And I'm thinking that because you deal with marketplaces a lot, one of the topics that is up for discussion is, hey, what take rate should I charge here in my marketplace? What's your general philosophy around setting a take rate? Well, so if you are market making, which most marketplaces are not, like, let me give you an example. I got some buddies out in California. They got a company called Loma, stands for local marketplace. They help people that have concentrated like-minded individuals around them. You know, like, let's say they're an influencer in like the, and they take old Airstream trailers and like fix them up and make them into things, right? And they've got a huge following. Loma would go to them and say, hey, look, why don't you take all the people around you and create a marketplace for them to transact with each other? They'd be a market maker. In a situation like that, there's no precedent, right? Like, you know, it's like, hey, these people would never have met each other. There's no way to buy and sell this stuff. Otherwise, you can set whatever number you want. The truth is, it's a negotiation on value between you and the other people. A percentage is a tough thing because like, if you want, like, you know, I say on the board of TCG player, right? Like if it was a 50 cent Pokemon card and I charge you 25 cents, but you didn't give a crap about it anyways, like that's a 50% take rate, but it's only a quarter, right? Versus ACV, it's got a take rate of like 4%, but like the average car is like 15 grand. You shouldn't focus on the take rate. You should focus on the value or orientation, always take value for it. But you got to be cheaper than what's out there. And you don't necessarily have to be cheaper. You could say, I'm going to match this rate but I'm going to give you money back or I'm going to do something else, right? Like I do think that there is the val- the non-monetary value aspects of what you do, which is why people come to it. And then there needs to be an addition to that. It's A and B for me to do it. A, it's got to be better. B, I got to make more money or it's got to be cheaper or I got to get a kickback or something. It's binary on the, on the take rate. I don't think people run away from it too much. You know, I'm friends with these guys out in London, Navoda. It's a diamond marketplace. Dave and and Dre have built an awesome company. It's a B2B marketplace between, you know, diamond polishers, which a majority of them are in Mumbai, India, and, you know, jewelry stores in Europe, US, Asia, all over the place. You know, and it's interesting. So like you know, I'm not going to talk about what their takes are, but I mean, it is less than what people charge. But in the U.S., the take rate or the amount charged by wholesalers are so much more than what it is in Europe. But it's because the service is different. People show up and just give you the diamonds here and they're like, I'll come back in five days and grab all the ones you didn't sell. Right. Where in Europe, it's it's diamond by diamond. It's a different transaction. So like, how does the service level work when there are two completely different markets with two completely different take rates? Right. Like, 
you know, yes, there could be tiered pricing based on where you are, but it's got to be value based. So this is what I say. Don't think of it like a take rate. There is a take rate aspect of what you do, right? Pretty much anywhere you swipe a credit card, Amex is taking 3%. That's their, that's their VIG. That's their take, you know? But like, there's different ways to tier things. So like at ACV, we productize things, right? Like, hey, we're going to like, here's the buy and sell fee, but like, we'll step in and take the risk on these things for this much per car if it sells. Or, you know, hey, if you want us to hold, you know, paper on this or like, you know, not cash a check for 60 days, you can use a line of credit or you can use ACV credit and this is what it's going to cost you. So when people talk about blended take, like, again, think of everything like a product. There's a product and there's a cost. It's not just a general take rate. If it's a general take rate and it's a managed marketplace, you really have a brokerage. Brokerages are not marketplaces, really. They're not, right? That's like me connecting people and I'm making the bridge on stuff. You know, real marketplaces aren't tech-enabled brokerages. They're places where the business happens on its own and all your job as the business owner or as the marketplace owner is to massage things to open up more channels. That's your job. You're a masseuse, right? Like, you know, that's what it is. You get the lumps out, you get the clogs out, you just let it run. You're a plumber, right? You know, whether it's a knot in my back or a wad of hair in my sink, like they both need to get removed so that circulation can continue, right? So if you're going to build a system, there should be circulation. Otherwise, you're building a brokerage and you're basically hand delivering things from A to B. And that's that's not a marketplace. So more generally, how do factors like payment responsibility and demand generation play a part? Like each of those, you, you take on, you know, more quote stuff to do. You can probably, you know, argue providing more value and a higher take rate. It depends how people are paying. Like if they're swiping their credit card with one person and like they're going to swipe it with me and then I'm just going to take the money and give it to somebody else when they have a credit card terminal, like who cares? ACV didn't have a cash element to it, right? People weren't. I mean, in the beginning, I, I can't tell you how many times like people would show up at the office in Buffalo with cash. I only had maybe 10 grand of my name when we started the thing. And like, there were a lot of times when like they'd show up and they'd be like, oh, we have $7,600 in cash. I'd be like, give it to me. I'd write a check to the business. I'd like walk down to the bank and give them the cash and be like, what am I going to do? Right? Like we keep telling these guys we don't take cash, but they have our address because it's on every it's got, it's it's on every pickup slip, you know. But no, there wasn't a cash element to the business. Just some independent and isolated hilarious events that probably a lot of the people in operations and accounting will laugh at if they hear this. Right? Do you have any other wacky operational things that happen when you were just starting out, like <laughs> briefcase full of cash or anything sketchy that you just had to do? The people in the used car business are colorful people. Exactly. And that's why I'm asking. It, it's, a, it's a cool blend of people. They're hardworking. They're colorful. <laughs> like the kind of things that we used to deal with, like every day, everybody would try to be screwing everybody else. <laughs> right. So like we'd be in the middle and like we intentionally had a system where we, did, we didn't tell you who the, we didn't tell the buyer who the seller was and the seller who the buyer was. And people would call and they'd flip out and they'd be like, I've never sold that guy a car. Can't. It would be like, stop. You can't do that. Like, that's not how we play, right? Like, your relationships with us. Did you get your money? Yeah. Is the car gone? Yeah. What's the problem? Nobody's ever going to bring it back, right? So, you know, but but again, like, we kept it. I mean, ACV started by three guys that were basically 30 years old, right? Who, to different degrees, me probably being the most childlike out of the three of us, like, kept it fun, right? We did. Like, we used to... People in operations would tell you that like, you know, every now and then there would be, they would call it the bonus ferry. They would just get more money in their paychecks. And it wouldn't be a lot. It would be, everybody would get the same amount, but it'd be like a hundred bucks or 200 bucks randomly, you know, around, you know, when kids get out of school or the holidays and stuff like that, you know, we would just try and do things that no one expected that was just enjoyable and fun. It's ACV is a service. And like, if, if our people aren't happy, then we're screwed right? The whole thing falls apart. So I always took this approach that the people that on the org chart were underneath me in real life were above me. And so I just would go to people and say, my job is to make sure that your job goes as easy as possible. So what do you need? And you better ask the people underneath you on the org chart who are above you in real life, what they need to, you know, because yeah, we get to sit, you know, each rung up, you know, we've got more ownership, you know, in some situations you make more money as the three founders weren't making the most money in the beginning. But we 
we took a servant leadership approach and we just tried to make it as fun as possible. So, cause it's not fun. I mean, it, it, uh, days were really hard. That's amazing advice. I got one more question for you. You've been generous with your time and then I'll, I'll let you go. So I was doing some research. You've invested in over 150 companies. Can you speak to the importance and frequency of investor updates? How should, you know, founders keep you in the loop? I did all of that in a highly concentrated period too. I really did that in three years. Here's what I like. Let, let, let me make the statement this way. I'll put my Samuel L. Jackson, you know, impersonation on. Like, do not call me if you need something. If you don't call me when you don't need something, right? Like, you need to find a way. I, I personally think this. I think that when you're preceding seed, I don't care how crappy the formatting is, how mis- type in how many spelling errors you should be sending me an email enough that you stay front of mind because you're going to need my help. And you should try and carry that as long as possible. I would love monthly updates. I want to know what your one KPI is. I want to know what your one victory is. I want to know what your one failure is. That's it. You should be able to say it from memory and type the email in five minutes. That's it. I don't need more than that. If I want more than that, I'll ask you. But like, Give me that every month. You report your numbers every month. You th- we think in months. It's 12 times a year. Even if I'm off by a factor of three and it takes 15 minutes, that is three hours of your time I'm asking for. You ask for at least 25 grand of my money and you're going to hold it for at least seven years. So if all I need is 21 hours of your time for $25,000, I'm paying you over $1,000 an hour. And that's all I'm asking for. And guess what? You give it to me, it's the same amount of time you spend on anybody else. So divide it by the number of angels you got, 20, and you're giving me one hour of your time. It's not a lot, you know? So get off my soapbox. That's a great trade-off. I, I like the ROI. And, and a lot of investors are lucky to have you on the cap table. Yeah, you, I guess you got to ask them, but I, 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 like to believe, I like to believe that. I like to believe I'm a good witch. Thanks for coming on, talking marketplaces, talking ACV. And uh, hey, man, I just love your story about how you started the company and what you're up to now. So really appreciate it. Cool, man. Just pay it forward. And thanks a lot for letting me do this. Roll the credits, producer Nancy. The Run the Numbers podcast is part of the Turpentine Network of Podcasts. It is produced by Nancy Shu and edited by Justin Golden. Artwork made by some AI thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. Don't forget to give us five stars. I really need this.